Society has long had dreams of future technologies. For example, the ubiquitous computing dream is a dream of smart everything, smart phones, smart homes, smart cars. The artificial intelligence dream is a dream of sentient machines, dreams with intelligence and awareness. And I contend that there is another type of technological dream that we've heard a little bit about today in the previous session. And this is the avatar dream, which I've defined as the idea that people want to use the computer to see themselves as whomever or whatever they want to be. So an article that I wrote for the communications of the ACM, a computer science magazine, has argued that there are two components to this avatar dream. The first one is simply technical. You know, this is enabling users to control a surrogate for themselves in virtual worlds. But the second part is experiential. This is using virtual selves to experience experiences beyond that which we encounter in the physical world. These range from having new abilities to understanding the experiences of others, that is, uh, people of another background or even another type of creature. But what I argue is that this is, is not enough. We need to reimagine the avatar dream as one that takes society and culture into account. Now, these days, nearly everybody uses virtual identities. If you have a social media profile, if you play video games using an avatar, if you have an online shopping account, you use a virtual identity. And given the widespread and growing use of these virtual identities, it's imperative to better understand their impacts and to establish best practices for using them. Yet beyond this, you know, there are also many ways that social assumptions are embedded into these social identities. They embed our biases, they embed our stereotypes, and many more kind of social ideas. And that's the impetus for the core message today, you know, is that as we begin to use these type of systems, they in fact begin to reinvigorate some of the same kind of phenomena that we know from the physical world. So many of you know this image. You know, this is from the classic Kenneth and Mamie Clark study from the 1940s, in which African-American schoolchildren are asked to pick which is the baby doll that looks nice, which is the good doll, and so on. And you see, with uh, most probability, which one they tended to select. One thing that's less reported about this is that there are also asked which doll is like you. And at that point, some of the kids even burst into tears as they began to choose, they realized that they chose a doll that was in fact different than their physical existence in, in, the, in, in the physical world. And that's uh, the idea for today's session. It's that virtual identities impact our performance, our engagement, our senses of self, and our perspectives of others. And since biases can be embedded into these virtual identity technologies, it's imperative to consider their social impacts. So first, let's just begin with uh, the definition. You know, so what are virtual identities? And so for me, you know, the reason I like to make this distinction is because people often contrast the virtual with uh, the real. I'd rather contrast the virtual with the physical, because if you consider issues such as online bullying or threats of violence, then you begin to think that these experiences have real impacts on ourselves and our livelihoods. So we can begin by looking at physical world identities, which are identity experiences that are informed by our history, our culture, and our values in the physical world that often manifest in our behaviors and actions. So to me, then, virtual identities are something much more restricted. 
You know, these are the kind of computational selves, the data structures and algorithms that construct ourselves when we're in virtual environments. And I think that where a lot of the action is, is in fact what I've called the blended identities. So these are the ways that cognitively we selectively project aspects from our physical world identity onto these virtual identities, and that includes our values, our behaviors, our actions. Even Pac-Man, you might think that's you know, something so different than our physical world selves, but even our sense of control is mapped onto as simple a character as this. So one of the things that I do you know, is... Uh, run, I uh, founded and direct a group called the Imagination, Computation, and Expression Laboratory at MIT. And we invent new forms of interactive narrative, video games, social media, VR, and related technologies. And technologies may be unanticipated by any of these. And one of the topics that we've engaged uh, for the last uh, seven years or so has been looking at the selves that inhabit these kind of realms, these physical world uh, blends with our virtual identities. You might ask, and I think you've been convinced a bit from some of the speakers earlier, but you might begin to ask, why is it so imperative and important to consider these kind of issues? So I'll present, this is just a very narrow lens on the issue, you know, but this is, you know, when you think that one of the most popular forms of these kind of virtual identities are uh, video games. So you see here, you know, this is uh, the global revenue you know, of uh, you know, video game sales within you know, the last, uh, last few years. And uh, you know, I could ask, you know, what do you think is the revenue of the film industry in uh, relation? That's globally. Uh, well, actually, it's this. <laughs> right, yeah, so if you begin to move it over here and go back a few years, yeah, it's actually equal only to the you know, revenue from uh, mobile and handheld games. So before you even think about PCs, consoles, and so on. Now, beyond, I mean, again, you know, revenue, that's just one kind of narrow lens on this issue, but an important one. But we can also look at uh, demographics. And, and so when we begin to look at uh, demographics of uh, video game players, then you begin to see, you know, this is from a U.S.-based uh, study in terms of racial demographics, you know, that the uptake of these technologies by people across groups is also quite broad. And then the gender breakdown, uh, too, you know, although not perfectly even, is more even than many people begin to ima imagine. You know, that's between uh, 56% and the 44% here. And for other types of virtual identities, you know, so this is from another, another study looking at social media, you begin to see you know, that uh, in various groups that you know, the majority of, of uh, people have begun to use these kind of uh, technologies uh, your Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and uh, so on. Now, when you begin to look at what's inside of these kind of technologies, it's a very different kind of picture. So this is from a 2009 study of the 150 best-selling uh, video games, and the census is quite a bit uh, different. Yeah, so you begin to see you know, that compared to 56% and 44%, in fact, 86% uh, of the characters within these video games are male, and you begin to see the breakdown in terms of uh, ethnicity, you know, with the majority of being white-identified uh, video game characters. And uh, this is actually, these are skewed numbers in a way, because when you take sporting games out of the mix, then it's a much more oblique story. But we can go further. So when you begin to think uh, more, another study has shown that 
90% of African-American and uh, black females in general, uh, and uh, it's not a great picture for uh, white females either. 45% of white females were, predict- were depicted as props or victims of, of violence in these best-selling games. And we can go even uh, further in this kind of direction. So, you know, this is 73% of women have faced online attacks, that's threats, cyber-stalking, and so on. And that women are 27 times more likely to be victimized on the internet than men. That's not percent in this case, this is 27 times more likely. So it's an issue that's been taken up even at levels within the United Nations. So what can we do in the face of this kind of situation? A lot of people these days also talk about algorithmic bias, the way that these biases find their way into the algorithms that we use, the way that uh, cameras uh, on popular uh, computing devices are not calibrated for particular skin tones, in fact, rendering some people invisible, right? So in the face of this, then, then, uh, you know, what can we do? And especially you think, uh, I mean, I've given a talk at one place and someone saw my CV and said, uh, digital media, artificial intelligence. Isn't that part of the evil empire? And so you know, what I thought was, uh, well, could we also begin to use these kind of uh, technologies, in fact, to analyze these systems? So to turn the lens around, it began to think, how can we reveal some of the biases that are built into these systems? And so I'll give at least one example of analysis and a few examples of systems that we've designed that are expressive systems to intervene in this situation. So first example for analysis will be a particular video game called uh, Elder, Scroll, Elder Scrolls for Oblivion. So it's a you know, very popular game series for those of you who aren't familiar with this series. It's a role-playing game, a computer role-playing game, something uh, like a Dungeons & Dragons style uh, genre. Uh, and I should also say that uh, in terms of impact, I mean, these are you know, you know, very much best-selling games. So the sequel, you know, I mean, it's one of the best-selling role-playing games and computer games of all time. You know, this, you, know, you could say, made $217 million adjusted for inflation on its first day of sales. So to contrast this, Star Wars, the original Star Wars, adjusted for inflation on its best weekend, made $27.2 million. So that's 217 million versus 27 million. So that's just to give you a sense of uh, uh, the, the kind of scope of uh, uptake of this kind of system. And when you play this game, you have a lot of ways to customize your representation within it. Uh, so uh, you know, this, you know, just to give you some sense, these are the set of sliders just for your cheeks within the game. So you imagine if you want to completely customize your physiognomy, how many kind of options that you have. There's a huge array of kind of customization options in terms of uh, the physical appearance, appearance, but also in terms of your statistical attributes, you know, your agility and your speed and your intelligence and willpower and so forth. And uh, uh, this, I'll read off uh, you know, just a little bit of this uh, for you. you know, there are a number of different kind of uh, uh, racial and ethnic groups that are represented within the game. And uh, just to look at a couple of these, you know, so... If you compare the orcs to the Argonians, you know, both kind of non-human types within this, the female avatars are given higher intelligence than their male counterparts. That's just cooked into the system. You know, there's nothing you can do about that uh, by, uh, by default. At the same time, when you look at different groups, you know, so I should say also, you know, this isn't you know, any, any sense to malign this particular kind of game. I mean, it's just a representative example. In fact, it does a lot better than a lot of these kind of games in terms of the diversity of representations. 
So you have different kind of groups, like the Bretons are ostensibly the French uh, within this. Uh, yeah, so you have uh, the Nords as a kind of a Scandinavian group. You have Red Guards, uh, which are uh, the ostensibly black group within it. Uh, Imperials are kind of Romans and so on. But one thing it does differently than other games is it reserves differences between ability that often have been between different types of creature, like humans versus hobbits, and then maps them onto ethnic groups, like uh, French versus Nords (laughs) within this game. So when you begin to look here and you see the French compared, uh, the Bretons compared to the Red Guard, the back counterparts, in fact, by default, they're going to be 20 points more intelligent (laughs) than, than the Red Guards. Right. So I think that's telling. I mean, so some people who are players of this game will argue because as you move throughout the game, then your abilities change based on what you do. It's a, it does predispose you in a way because if you're better at running and jumping and you practice that, then you end up, say, as a red guard, just maximizing your running and jumping ability. But at the same time, you can change your abilities and go in a different direction. But studies have shown that a predominant type of game player are a type of players that are achiever players that try to maximize their scores. And so for this type of player, they're never going to be satisfied if you choose to be one of the kind of groups that's not optimized to play in a particular type of style. But we went, we went further, because you could just read this right off the manual and say you know, which group has better scores by default. So what we wanted to do was see if we could automatically discover some of the kind of deeper biases that are built into, into this type of system. So we began to use some techniques from statistical analysis and machine learning to perform clustering, so unsupervised learning approach to looking at categories in this data set. And just to make sure we're all on the same page here, uh, so, I mean, clustering typically will look for shared features between uh, different, uh, uh, different items. So imagine these are different characters within some game or social media account, and then find similarities and then begin to cluster them together. Now, what we did was use a different kind of approach called archetypal analysis for one of our analyses. We've used a lot of different types of approaches, uh, deep learning and, and so on, but this is just one of the kind of initial and simpler approaches that we've used. And so what archetypal analysis does is it actually finds the kind of extreme types in order to define your data set. And I'll tell you what that means in a second. It's actually called computing a convex hull around your data set. But let's make that more uh, intuitive. So the idea is imagine that we are mapping a set of birds. Each one of these points represents some type of bird. Then one extreme, uh, you know, let's say some common type would be something like a songbird, you know, a bird that you see every day. A more extreme type might be a bird like this you know, that talks. Another kind of extreme type is a bird that doesn't even fly, right? it just uh, swims. And another type would be one like this, you know, just very angry, not even a physical world bird. And so then what we might imagine is that one like this, which is both a penguin, it talks, and it's very angry. It's right smack in the middle of this. Right, so the interesting thing about this is that you can then define all of your items in terms of your data set. So I could say that a seabird, for, for example, is very close to the penguin within this kind of set. This is used for sports analytics and other types of area. And so we took that particular game, we fed in all the data for default race, gender, attributes, and then what emerged from this was three archetypes. 
it's not given to you that you'll find a three from within this. So that was notable because in games, a lot of times there are three types of play pattern that exist. In this case, one that is stealthy and sneaky, a kind of thief type, one that's intelligence oriented, wizard type, and then one which is a strength oriented fighter type. Uh, so this wasn't something that we put into the system. This just came out from the data when we began to analyze it to find what are the extreme types here. And then what we did was plot out all of the defaults in terms of race, gender, attributes. So here, the males are represented as red, the females as black. And then their proximity to each of these points says how much they represent this, type, this archetype. And so one of the things that you can notice here uh, in the fact that we have these... Uh, Male red dots you know, for wizard and uh, for the strength-oriented fighter and the you know, intelligence-oriented wizard again, that females are only optimized to play the thief within this, within this particular game. <laughs> right. <laughs> Similarly, if you take a look at another, uh, another type, uh, here I mentioned the uh, uh, red guards, and you see the Nords are kind of close, uh, closely related uh, here as a kind of uh, Viking stereotype, are only associated with the physical strength archetype and have no of the, none of the attributes of the intelligence-oriented type within this kind of uh, diagram. Right, so that, to me, is even a little bit more interesting than what I said at the beginning when we just looked at the defaults, because this means that what you're optimized to do, how you're optimized to behave, how you're optimized to play within this, has been embedded within the system algorithmically and data structurally. It actually reminds me of something more of system embedded bias like this. I mean, the image is taken, just taken from apartheid South Africa, and I mean, it's not like it's been much uh, different in, in the United States or in other areas, too, where you've had this kind of extreme type of discrimination. But what we've done here is turn this uh, lens of uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, and clustering techniques onto these kind of systems in order to reveal this type of bias. So why would we want to do this? It actually dovetails onto some of the kind of topics that some of the previous speakers mentioned. Right, we want our systems to serve a larger, broader, more diverse set of users. We also want designers to be able to have techniques to help to ensure the equity of, of their and our systems. And policymakers, and I should say that I don't think that... Uh, I don't give additional priority necessarily to quantitative and empirical evidence in contrast to thick description or other types of analysis from the social sciences and humanities. But I think it could be a complementary here to say that we have a way to find quantitative empirical evidence in order to support assessments and ratings and guidelines for this type of media. Now, I want to also talk to you about designing virtual identity systems. And so we've done a lot of different types of designs. I only have time to tell you about a couple of them today. But we've done works, for example, on issues of racial microaggression. So this is a, a game I won't tell you much about today, but called Mimesis. You play as a mimic octopus, and, uh, which is a type of octopus that imitates other creatures. And you meet a series of other creatures that embody different types of very uh, subtle you know, discrimination, in a sense. The kind of experiences are often dismissed as minimally harmful, but in aggregate, clinical psychologists have shown to be detrimental to health and happiness in forms of stress, anxiety, depression, and so forth. So this one represents the alien in one's own land kind of stereotype, where the seahorse says, you know, who's also from the tidal region, and says, sorry, we don't get many octopuses around here. The jellyfish describes a skill to you. Uh, oh, you're, may I touch your tentacles? They're so exotic. <laughs> and that is, you know, this sort of thing. <laughs> right. 
right? This is another one, and you can find you know, find these uh, uh, online on our on our site. You know that models impression management, how we change ourselves and conform and how to fit into different settings. And so there are two groups, which are like elves and uh, hobbits. They're called sylvans and brushwoods in this case. And you, as a sylvan, you know, the kind of poetry-loving, finery-loving uh, group, you know, has to try to talk your way into a keep. And as you do, you may be accepted or rejected, but you also change the way you think about yourself. You might get in, but think, well, I had to pretend to be something I'm not. You might have acted in a completely sylvan way, and then by the end, you're surprisingly welcomed by the Rushwood guard, who says, hey, great, it's wonderful to have a little sylvan flavor in here, which the sociologist Irving Goffman calls a stigma allure, you know, the kind of stigma, of the, uh, the kind of allure of the stigmatized category. And you know, this is uh, another one that's based, it's not an avatar like a game, but it's one where you actually, it's ba- modeling your musical preference. So it's based on the model of conversation analysis, uh, analysis from sociolinguistics, in which as you talk about different artists that you like, your photo wall changes and the way that people respond to you in, within the setting begins to change. So a different type of way to represent you online. And so one of the ones that I'll talk to you about in more depth today, and actually demo, is called uh, Grayscale. And so this is a system uh, in which users have to think about and reflect on issues of sexism and sexual harassment within the workplace. I should say also that a lot of these systems aren't built just as one-off systems. We actually have built a patent-pending engine that models the kind of shifts of identity as you move between different kind of locales. So rather than putting you in the proverbial box, the system can model how people move from the interior to the margins of categories, the trajectory of your category membership over time. So all of this is modeled dynamically to change the experience as you go. And so what the system Grayscale models is a kind of notion called ambivalent sexism. So this is a very popular and well-known model of sexism via Fisk and Glick. It began in, in, originated in 1996 in a paper called The Ambivalent Sexism Inventory. And it's a model that looks at this idea of sexism being split into hostile sexism, the kind that we've heard uh, extreme uh, amount uh, uh, about in this galvanized communities around issues of uh, uh, the Me Too movement and so on, but also kind of a subtle form of sexism. They call it benevolent sexism, you know, but it's not benevolent in the sense that it's anyhow good. It's more like benevolent dictator, right? It's something that we know is oppressive, you know, but has this kind of patina on top of it you know, of acceptability. And so I'll say just a little bit about this in the ways in which it's no less oppressive. So to begin with, this system puts you in the role of a newly minted human resources manager in a toxic workplace called Grayscale Corporation. The system, the story unfolds as a series of emails that you get, and you're granted agency through the use of a fictionalized custom email system you know, that we built to resemble kind of well-known uh, email systems. And so here, we'll just, I'll just uh, let you take a look at it here. All right, so this is the splash page, and then we have to log in to the system. And in some sense, your avatar within this is nothing but the 
color that, that you choose. Yeah, so we'll just choose that one here. Right. Yeah, so we first, like I said, it looks just like a, a streamlined version of email systems you might uh, you might use. You have even spam within it. Um, this quota exceeded. I need your help. Esteemed Princess Demetrius von Dinglehopper, small island, wants you to donate money and, and so on. Right. You have notes on your coworkers. So, and the structure of a grayscale corporation. Todd, typical exec. Tammy, nice, but something's weighing on her. Stan, OMG, so creepy. <laughs> right, yeah, so we've thought about our, our coworkers already. Uh, and uh, yeah, so we begin with a welcome email that uh, says, well, we are thrilled to welcome you to the Grayscale family. You're a temporary HR uh, administrator and so on. Okay, so we're ready to begin. So some time passes and we get some new messages that come in. These exclamation points mean these are messages that we have to answer. So some typical emails. Beware of Stanley Rose. He's a bit of a breather. <laughs> so it goes on uh, like this. Uh, and uh, I mean, this, this, this initial email, it's a kind of gentle introduction to this uh, topic based on somewhat well-known research now that office temperatures aren't optimized in terms of uh, uh, gender. You know, so there's a kind of battle over the thermostat in uh, offices. Uh, and, okay, so is it freezing in here? No big deal, just bring a jacket to work. If it were any warmer, I'd have to install a, a fan. So we can choose our uh, answer. All right. But then other issues begin to come in. You know, so this is a kind of thread between coworkers. Uh, and long story short, um, here says Tammy, sick child, no understanding from Barb, and I was entirely within the company policy. Uh, and so you could read the whole thread if you, uh, if you like. You know, but uh, you know, that's the basic story, is that uh, there's a conflict between Tammy and Barbara there. And so do we choose... Uh, so this is meant to simulate this idea that we have thought about our responses. We have to choose which one do we actually hit the send button on out of these responses. So is she being dramatic? Nothing to read into this. You're not being too sensitive. Uh, you're extremely not being too sensitive, and you're on the receiving end of an issue by Stan. Okay, let's blame, let's blame Stan. <laughs> okay, so now there's been some... Uh, and I should say, everyone's... You know, this is just part of the theme, the theme here. Everyone's surname is something like Silver, you know, or our name is Gray, or Sage, or Steel. <laughs> so everything just has this kind of... Uh, uh, a, a kind of bland patina to it. Okay, so there's graffiti in the men's room... They tell you even what, where it is. They let list who's hot or who's not. Well, I'm down with the whole Banksy thing. This graffiti is not that. Yeah, so let's take care of it. Draft responses. And as we do this, we're being classified in terms of the type of sexism that we're exhibiting, supporting, and so on within this. So do you just tell, talk to the custodial staff to handle it? Uh, do you refuse to interfere personally, you know, but suggest that they put a note there? Or do you, in fact, bring it up yourself and intervene directly at the next meeting? Right, so you get a sense. You know, it, it, it goes on like this until you get a, a kind of evocative ending of the story. And as you go through this uh, story, uh, then... 
you know, again, you know, this, we think about it, uh, you know, as I think as you heard earlier, for us, immersion isn't only about the kind of fidelity of the visual experience, you know, because this is meant to be a kind of naturalistic interface. So, in fact, you feel like you're doing what you would do within that kind of office space. Uh, this is uh, another one that, that you didn't see. The company has a dress code for a reason. Yoga, someone yeah, here, Rob, is saying, yoga pants are A, unprofessional, and B, distracting. So how do we want to respond uh, to uh, Rob here? Right. You can say it's not your responsibility to regulate your coworkers' clothes or comments about your coworkers' apparel being distracting, will not be tolerated, and so on. So you begin to get a sense of this. And what it's modeling under this, uh, under this ambivalent sexism model is issues like hostile sexism, complementary gender differentiation, you know, the, the other kind. Of, oh, you must really be good at those kind of people skills that involve emotion and this, you know, this, this sort of thing. Protective paternalism. Oh, let me go set up the computer for you. Yeah, so it's actually modeling these subtle types of uh, sexism that exist uh, too. Yeah, so as you go through the experience, you know, this is just one example of what is happening on the back, uh, on the back end, that there could be some threshold, and you've got varying trajectories, fluctuating trajectories, monotonically increasing trajectories, and so on, that each lead to different kind of eventualities and different kind of utterances and experiences within the story. Uh, 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 this you know, somewhat impenetrable diagram is just, uh, it describes the number uh, of you know, possible you know, you know, endings and structures between this. So there's actually a huge number of possibilities that are generated by the system based upon how you're being uh, classified. Right now, I would guess, you know, uh, you know, my estimation is that there are about 72 distinct outcomes you know, within, within the system. Just to give you a couple of uh, examples of these kind of uh, thematic endings, you know, so these are just uh, a few. But one, for example, Grayscale has concluded that morale at your branch might have been better if you had intervened in your role as a temp manager of human resources. The current issues going on are the sort of things that lead to very bad press. Do something about this quickly or there will be consequences, which is a kind of hostile sexist ending uh, within, within, uh, within this response to hostile sexist play. Another one, you know, that is, if you actually have been a non-sexist, it appears that your interesting management strategy is working for now. Despite some initial hiccups, the productivity and image of your branch appear to be on the rise. And essentially, you're put on warning. A bit of congratulations, but if this doesn't persist, we might have to go back to the old ways. So there's some kind of tension in the kind of choices that you end up having. I want to say also that I think that strictly putting yourself in an experience in terms of physical, I mean, in terms of graphical representation, isn't going to be enough yeah, in order to help understand these kind of uh, issues. So what we're actually looking for with a system like this is transformative reflection. And so what we mean is something like this. Yeah, so imagine the student played a game that's about the life cycle of a butterfly. The aim isn't to know somehow, well, now I know what it feels like to be a butterfly. <laughs> right? yeah, the aim is to learn something like this. You want to learn about this life cycle, the metamorphosis cycle, so that when you begin to see it out there in the world, you can recognize it, you know, that you can label it, that you can name it. And so we think about it the same sort of way, is that when people use this type of system, uh, and one of the things that we're doing now is actually embedding within the system uh, a kind of debriefing model, so you can begin to understand what was this experience that uh, you just had and begin to uh, name it too, so that when you see this type of ambivalent sexism uh, in the world, you know, that uh, not only do you recognize it as you know, my experience in the physical world, but also have a kind of vocabulary 
And also for people that have experienced it in lesser degrees, understand the systematicity of the kind of experience. It's not just a one-off experience. It's something that happens systematically and repeatedly. So I'll give just one more example of another kind of system. This is a very different system, a VR system I collaborated on. And it's a, a system that's focused on humanizing the other in the face of war. And so the director of the project was Kareem Ben Khalifa, a uh, 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 war photojournalist, and I was a human-computer inter uh, 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 interaction producer on the project. So this came out of his experiences uh, as a war photojournalist, because when you take uh, these kind of images, when they're... I mean, his, his work has been all over, in uh, Le Monde, in uh, New York Times, New Yorker, and so on. When your work is in these, uh, these kind of periodicals, they're often paired with articles that you didn't necessarily, necessarily or you know, most definitely didn't select yourself. And so sometimes it can correspond to your experience on the ground, and sometimes it can be very, uh, very different. And so what he began doing differently is to begin to contrast his experience on the ground to, peop uh, to you know, stories of people in these, uh, experience in these conflicts was ask basic questions, like, why do you fight? Have you killed before? Where do you see yourself in 10 years? What's peace for you? What's war for you? And the beginning version was just two images, say, in a gallery that just had their answers there. They moved into digital versions and then finally discovered a VR and began to think, what can we do with a VR system? So I met him, and I was doing this work on interactive narrative and a number of different types of system. We thought, how can we make that, that experience more dynamic? So a journalistic experience, but one that changes based on uh, your, your engagement. So I'll tell you more about that in a moment. So as he's traveled to major uh, kind of conflict zones uh, in Gaza, uh, in Congo, you know, with gangs of El Salvador, and so on, uh, then the soldiers were captured. You know, so these were you know, you know, physical world interviews with people, say, outside a mine in East Congo, actually with conflict for the kind of resources used to build devices like this. So we're actually all implicated in this. Uh, and so you see this kind of combatants, you know, like we're just on the screen, on either side of the room. It's actually a large space. Five people go through the experience at a time. Other people who are going through with you look like a kind of silhouette you know, as, as you move through, so you don't you know, crash into people that are going through the experience with you. Initially, there are images on the wall. You walk to the image, you see a photograph. Let's say Gilad is on one side, Abu Khaled is on the other side. And then you hear footsteps, and you realize, actually, these soldiers are virtually in this space uh, with me. And they'll call you over. If you move too quickly, they might you know, slow you down. You know, if you're not moving at all, they might call you over. The body language is naturalistic. You know, they're you know, they looking at you. They're following your gaze and uh, so on. There's also an augmented uh, reality version of, uh, of this, uh, too. And also apps to help you think about your kind of implication in the conflicts, you know, again, as you look uh, globally and think about the role that we have you know, within the conflicts uh, themselves. And so again, they're asked these basic kind of uh, questions, but what we worked on uh, together was to make the experience dynamic and give you feedback. So as you're reading the system, the system is also reading you. That means that if you're more nervous or more biased, that changes your experience. In fact, uh, if you look up, you might notice uh, in the virtual experience, there are kind of skylights there. And the more nervous you are over a period of time, you have this feeling of the sun being obscured by clouds on a cloudy day, that kind of darkening kind of feeling. And if you're very attentive, then it begins to lighten. So it's a kind of cinematic effect, but done in a, in a naturalistic kind of way for the environment. 
you might get uh, feedback from the system. Hey, I noticed you listen more to one than the other and have to self-reflect on that experience. As you go through further, the epilogue also changes and you get a kind of different poetic reading depending on your trajectory. You're moving between nervousness and bias. We're moving towards being less nervous as you went and, and so on. And then finally, as you get to the end of the experience, you know, there's a kind of virtual mirror, and uh, you move, you see the combatant again, but you realize, shit, they're moving with me. And in fact, you are the combatant that you're least comfortable with as you went through the experience. That is, you could be your enemy if you were raised like uh, the enemy. So you know, I'll move towards conclusion. I want to just show a trailer just to give you a sense of what the experience looked like and some of the kind of impetus for the experience. The enemy was born out of my frustration as a photojournalist and war correspondent. For almost 20 years, I have photographed conflicts and witnessed the consequences of huge geopolitical shifts. When I became a father, I simply knew I could not keep working on the front lines. Yet, I was not done trying to understand wars. My friends in Israel, when they know I'm heading for Gaza, can't help themselves but to wish me luck and to stay safe. They believe a lot of people in Gaza are irrational. Also, when I spend weeks working in Gaza and I'm about to return to Israel, my Palestinian friends are telling me the exact same thing. Be careful there. The project is rooted in my experience as a war photographer, going from one side of the front line to the other and finding that the fighters' dreams, hopes, and nightmares are often more similar than they are different. So there is a bigger story than the war itself, and this is the one I want to explore and share. For the enemy, I am using the latest technologies in virtual and augmented realities so you can engage directly with the combatants and meet them, hear them, and feel them the way I did. In many parts of our worlds, you create an enemy as a kid without having met your enemy because the society around you has created an enemy in the other. So the question is, could I be you if I was on the other side? Right, so it gives at least just some kind of uh, sense of this, uh, just just uh, a little bit, and uh, the making of it. I want to say just a couple of uh, reflections about the kind of experience, because you know, first, 
one aspect of it was kind of giving voice to the combatants themselves, uh, uh, too, and they were complicit with the aims of the project. You know, so uh, Kareem tells a story, for example, of uh, Gilad, say, the first time that he goes into the experience, and uh, the first time was just uh, dismissive. It's, oh, this, yeah, they, they all say that, right? You know, his wife said something completely different. She said, this is Gilad, you know, this virtual person. You know, this is uh, my husband you know, that is right uh, within this experience. But then uh, Gilad said, but let me go back, you know, let me go back one more time uh, and, uh, and just wanted to engage with the experience uh, a, a bit more. You know, one interesting follow-up of this is that months later, after a period of intense uh, fighting, Grim called up each of the combatants in order to check, uh, are you okay physically, mentally, and so on. Uh, fortunately, physically, you know, both were relatively you know, okay. I mean, mentally, there is some kind of uh, impact, of course. Uh, and so, you know, so at the end of that conversation, one of the combatants actually said uh, to Cream, you know, something which was completely surprising at that uh, at, at that point, you know, based on the prior experience. Uh, you know, so Gilad said at this time, "Oh wait, I have one more question for you. That is, how is Abu Khalid doing?" Right. So for us, that was a kind of a mind-blowing experience. You know, I mean, it's, uh, again, just an anecdote. You know, but this idea that there was some kind of concern, at least in some way, you know, the enemy has been uh, humanized because the initial reaction was completely different than this. We've had a number of people. I mean, it's been shown at the MIT Museum. It's been shown in Tel Aviv and uh, uh, Paris and multiple places internationally. I mean, a dream is to take it back you know, to think about the next generation of fighters you know, because that's where you might have more of a kind of intervention uh, and uh, to actually get it back to Congo and uh, so on. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, we, you know, so we've shown it to adults, kids, and so forth. I mean, not young children, you know, but uh, say eighth graders and uh, so on. And after a group of eighth graders were prompted, you know, they had some kind of units where they discussed this kind of issue, engaged it. I mean, their reactions were uh, you know, actually telling in a way. You know, so after seeing uh, Pashian and uh, Jean Didou, you know, who are you know, like, uh, Congolese uh, uh, soldiers, just said, actually, I just wanted to hug them. You know, I mean, these guys, I mean, they've actually been in the bush, you know, they're, you know just uh, in conflict you know, uh, in the rebel side and actually you know, are you know, diminutive because of nutrition, about the same size as these eighth grade students. And uh, just the fact that when they heard these reflections about the last time that they remembered peace, say before being scripted to become a child soldier, was when they were the same age as those students, was a kind of a telling moment. So I think you could say now, what are the kind of impacts of designing these types of systems to uh, reveal bias? You know, so some of the kind of things that we're interested in are, when thinking about new forms of art and entertainment that begin to use the conventions of the medium in uh, you know, ways that can begin to push the boundaries, especially in terms of social cultural engagement. Engaging people about social issues in a reflective way so not only issues like behavior change, but reflection, challenging what were your presuppositions before going into the experience. And then simulating social phenomena as a means of social science uh, research. You know, so that's, again, I think that uh, you know, just appearing as a member from another group is a stepping stone, but it's not enough to really understand experiences of another. We actually have to be able to Model, And I think actually the aim of our systems isn't to say, now emotionally I know what it's like to be somebody else. It's to say that there is a structure and a system, you know, that there is a kind of systematicity 
to these experiences that now I understand that this isn't just a one-off experience. Right, so that's a, that's a kind of related but uh, different aim that we have here. And that requires going into modeling of social phenomena within these kind of experiences. So then the vision for this uh, talk was then, if I remind you of where we started, that virtual identities impact our performance, our engagement, our senses of self, and our perspectives of others. And since biases can be embedded in virtual identity technologies, it's imperative to consider their social impacts. And we think back to the avatar dream. You know, that's what I posited as this kind of broad social dream that people want to use the computer to see themselves as whomever or whatever they want to be. We actually need to reimagine this dream. We need to reimagine it as something that is an empowering vision in which consideration of its social impacts and its cultural impacts are intrinsic to the act of inventing it. Thank you very much. Thank you ever so much. So, it's very difficult to summarize everything you've just said, but very broadly speaking, what you do is analyzing systems to reveal bias, but also a kind of narrative or embodied narrative design to fight bias. Uh, so I guess I have to connect back to the previous session and say, where are you on this uh, suggestion of, of VR as, a, as an empathy machine? How much empathy does it build and what exactly is it that has that effect? Right. Yeah, so it's a, it's a question I've gotten frequently. And so I think we have to also separate because, as you mentioned earlier, that empathy has been used as a buzzword. You know, it's been, you know, yeah, been used in kind of corporate settings, you know, that are, yeah, is more just a kind of uh, a selling point. It's also been used in a kind of sensationalistic you know, kind of way sometimes, you know, that suggests you know, that only this emotional engagement is enough. And I think you yourself offered that kind of critique that, yeah, you could go away and say that, well, I felt horribly. And actually, maybe that even absolves you of guilt. You think, now I don't have to do anything differently. So I'm also very cautious about you know, that, that purely an emotional experience is enough you know, to, to change. But certainly, I think we all could agree you know, that empathy, that's actually why I use this term, uh, humanizing the other, you know, rather than something you know, like empathizing uh, you know, with, the, with the enemy. Also, just as a technical term, I mean, you read some of the you know, latest articles on empathy, there'll be eight different definitions of empathy, right? And so you'll have one definition that says empathy is something that, in fact, you know, that is more like a trait, like introversion or extroversion. Another one that suggests that empathy is something that can be manipulated and, uh, and changed, you know, that's more externalized through behavior. So then, you know, we say, uh, where are we in this, in this process? You know, so I certainly think that empathy is important and then applaud eff efforts that if they can in some legitimate way encourage uh, empathy, but what we tend to do with these systems is, you know, actually you know, with Grayscale, then we run a study in which we can say, did this system actually trigger reflective engagement? Mm -hmm. Did people begin to change some of their presuppositions before going in it? Conceptual change means filling in the pieces that are missing, like building a model by pieces uh, you know, so that you can understand something in a, more, uh, in, a, in a more holistic and comprehensive way you can apply later. And so our aims are more like this, so people can better understand these phenomena. Uh, and I think that empathy is just uh, one piece of the puzzle, but I'm very cautious about using it just because of all the reasons that I, that I just mentioned. Now, for what you just said, it made me think maybe that's actually, maybe the focus is wrong, because if I'm thinking about empathy, I'm thinking about some kind of state that I like to imagine is in essential to me. Either I am empathetic or not, and I have all kinds, it comes with all kinds of values. Really, the, the lack of empathy, the problem with that is the dehumanizing 
of the other. So maybe it would be easier to think of it in terms of the relationship. It would be more productive to think of it in terms of can this experience rehumanize the other for me. And that's, of course, what your, your work does systematically. I would like to ask about Grayscale. Do you know, how much do you know about the players and, and how they engage with it? Because, of course, it is also an educational role-playing game. So I portray a character through my choices. And maybe if, I mean, and if, I, if I play it in, a, in the role of a very sexist person, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that I'm a sexist, for instance. It can totally mean that I've, I've experienced sexism and I live vicariously through this fantasy of this game. Does it, do you think it's important what choices people make as they play and are they consistent in the role they take? Uh, right, it's a good question. So certainly it's not meant, uh, so there's, you know, people might know, you know, there's a well-known test online, the implicit association test right, for kind of unconscious uh, you know, bias. Uh, and so, I mean, you can go online and take this test for any number of issues. Uh, this is coming out of Harvard University, you know, whether it's uh, body type or race or gender and, and so on. Then at the end, it points a finger back at you and says, but you have unconscious bias, or no, you're, you don't have bias. And so what we're doing with a system like Grayscale isn't, uh, is, isn't this. You know, the aim isn't to say that because you played in a sexist way or non-sexist way that you are sexist or not, is rather even if people begin to explore the system, they begin to see, uh, again, there's a kind of pattern of these kind of behaviors, you know, that, you know, that sexism breaks down into this kind of uh, you know, phenomena. You know, like you could say, well, that was a case of complementary gender differentiation. You know, that was a case of protective paternalism you can begin to recognize some of these kind of experiences. So that's one of the kind of aims. That's a bit uh, different. And we've also run user studies where we actually look at the demographic groups of people who have used the system and how they respond differently. And so certainly there's been differences between people you know, that are uh, you know, male-identified, female-identified, you know, self-identified users uh, within this in aggregate. And so one of the kind of things that we can also do is actually give people a small test scenario at the very beginning, see how they respond to that scenario, use that in combination with what we might know about them, and let's say if they're really familiar with this kind of experience, even this particular model, we can change the experience and then make it more subtle in some ways. Or if people are completely oblivious, like, what's going on here? You know, this seems like a fun place to work, right? We can actually amp up the model in a different kind of ways. So we actually need to make the system more adaptive and dynamic. You know, that's actually what I've been more interested in, in terms of learning about uh, users. So we can make the system more like a bespoke stories, custom made, you know, that uh, you might not get what you want, but you might get uh, what you need. This might be a very technical <laughs> question, but, but I was astonished at the level of responsiveness uh, in, the, in the enemy. So how, does the, how exactly does the VR experience know that I'm uncomfortable or what my bias is while I'm in the experience? All right, so that was actually a, a challenging part of this, you know, because there are a lot of different ways that you could go about this, you know, from you know, you know, biometrics and facial rec- uh, 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 kind of facial analysis and so on. So we actually looked at a number of these different kind of uh, uh, approaches. Uh, and I mean, you can buy you know, a device now. It's about fourteen hundred dollars know, for you know, one that begin to measure you know, your you know, heart rate and skin response. I mean, much more fidelity than something you know like a fitness tracker. Uh, there's EEG devices you know, that are unobtrusive, so we got one of those and you know, began to play around uh, too. But actually, when you have such a large number of people going through the museum, you know, just having a few people walk off with this $1,400 device, <laughs> that's a kind of a issue uh, too, and then calibrating it and so on. So we began to use what we can read directly from the Oculus and what we know about issues you know, like 
body language, proximity, gaze, and uh, so on. So depending on the angle, your stillness, your bodily stillness, and then also normalizing for what's the first experience versus later experiences and, uh, and so on. So we look to see, you know, depending on how far you are outside of the norm of uh, behaviors in, within each experience, and then use that as a proxy. So it's not a kind of definitive measure. I can't say for sure I know this kind of that what your internal state is, but it does give us at least some kind of proxy that we can respond to. And then we build into the system ways so people can begin to self-reflect regardless. That is, we don't say, yeah, the voiceover, yeah, I mean, mostly it screams voiceover, but there's another voiceover that uh, doesn't say, you were biased when you were speaking to a patient yeah, in this situation. It'll just tell you something like, I notice you listen more to one than the other. Yeah, so then you have to think about it a bit yourself. And again, it goes back to the reflection. In uh, educational games, we often say that that uh, the learning doesn't happen in the experience. It often ha always happens after. Yeah. Otherwise, you can, as you said, be completely oblivious and go through it. I'm, we're running out of time. So very briefly, there's a question from the Grand Malmö, which is... Uh, about the first part of, of your talk, uh, about this large array of avatar customization yes. options. Can, what if that, does that overwhelm the user? Is there a risk that you just revert back to bias if you just have too much choice? Uh, right, yes. Yeah, so I, men I mentioned that just as an example to give you a sense of the array of options you have within this uh, game. And then you actually can make you know, something that visually, and even in terms of ability to some degree, you know, I mean, it can embody a number of kind of diverse, uh, a number of kind of diverse personas. Uh, but at the same time, there's been research that shows. So Lisa Nakamura, for example, is a uh, uh, author. I mean, one of the many critics. You know, there's a famous cartoon that uh, has you know, that you know, people have probably seen. I mean, it's spoken about a lot in academia. That on the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. It's two dogs at a computer, and it's meant <laughs> as this kind of uh, you know, like almost utopian kind of idea. But what critics always say is that. Wait, does that mean that you have to play as a human? <laughs> does that mean that you have to be like what people expect you to be when you're in these kind of spaces? And I mean, other research, for example, uh, uh, you know, researchers out of uh, Texas and uh, California, Everett and Watkins, suggest that, in fact, a lot of these games become pedagogical zones for identity. You know, they say they're you know, like racialized pedagogical zones or gender pedagogical zones by extension. That means rather than teaching you about the experiences of others, it has, in fact people will just bias others. I mean, Nakamura says that basically playing an Asian character in a game for people who are not from that background often play the stereotype. They play as a geisha or a samurai. You know, so that's, again, I think what we need then is to model the kind of uh, experiences. It's not just enough to have the customization options. Certainly having a nice interface and ways to customize with some uh, fidelity is uh, useful, but we're actually interested in going far you know, beyond just the visual and number yeah. of options, but to begin thinking about the experiences that you will have regardless what option you and of course, that also uh, again comes back to, to actual representation on the de development side as well. We're running out of time. We could talk about this all night, but I'm sure we can continue the conversation uh, all night or online. Please, uh, please give a big hand to D. Fox Harrell. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you.